is your first time here uh, with us uh, in this series, just so you know, I keep on adding this caveat that um, we're not in this because we have some particular fascination with uh, some particular theory of Revelation. We're in this because it occupies 22 chapters of God's Word, and uh, it ought to be taught, and I trust that uh, because it's God's Word, it's meant for blessing, He will do just that. So we are taking time to go through this, and just uh, on a personal note too, this is the hardest sermon series I've ever done. Um, It's a challenging book, but my goal is uh, to serve you guys, and ultimately the Lord that we might know more about Him and His ways. Revelation is not about curiosities. It's ultimately about Jesus Christ, crucified and risen and reigning, and God's plans in that. So we will focus on that. So we're going to be in chapter 12. We're moving along just one chapter this week. Last, cha- last week we did two. I know it was a, a pretty dense uh, sermon. Hopefully this won't be as dense uh, and it will make sense to us. But uh, as you're turning there, uh, anyone here remember Paul Harvey News? Yeah, everybody over 40. Um, Paul Harvey uh, started his program in 1940. He went to the year 2008. At the peak, he made more money through his program than, uh, this was 1979, than Barbara Walters, Walter Cronkite, and Mike Wallace combined. That's how popular this program was. He was famous for his program called The Rest of the Story. And you might remember that famous tagline he would start out, you, you know the news, what the news is, in a minute you're going to hear the rest of the story. And then he would finish after his story saying, now you know the rest of the story. And uh, you actually can access those, they're still online via podcasts, and they're fascinating. I was reviewing one uh, great story, uh, it was about a track star in the 1912 Olympics. And he was competing in the 4,000-meter portion of the modern pentathlon. uh, And he finished the race. He came in third, but it was so hot and so humid. Conditions were so difficult that he actually passed out unconscious after the finish line. And the trainer took him uh, into a tent, and they were attending to him, and they were very concerned because actually two other people had passed out during that part of the race, and one of them had died. And so he's there, and the trainer's seeking to take care of him. And, and the trainer decided to use uh, a performance-enhancing substance that was legal at that time called HOP. And he thought, you know, th- he may die, so let's try this. Maybe this will, this will revive him. Uh, and, he, and he went to uh, inject this runner, this guy, with the HOP. And the runner actually woke up. Uh, at that point, before even the injection uh, was finished. And he was concerned, the runner actually was concerned that this, this performance-enhancing substance actually might kill him. He was, that's part of it. He was shocked. Oh, no, you're giving me more of that. And it, it, from what we know now, it looks like his fainting and the other's fainting was related to the use of this substance. Part of what happened was that the substance uh, got you to perform above your natural ability, and so you'd get overheated and faint and so forth. Well, uh, this runner named George did survive. And the substance now is banned. We know it by another name. It's called opium. That runner, George, survived and he went on to serve in the U.S. Army. He became a very famous general. uh, And you know him as George S. Patton. 
the famous World War II general commander of the Third Army. And now you know the rest of the story. <laughs> well, why am I telling you that? <laughs> As we go through Revelation, we've been listening to these stories, these visions. There's cycles of visions. We've done three cycles so far. Uh, the first cycle with the seven churches in the throne room, then the next cycle with the seals, the next cycle with the trumpets, and now we're on to a new cycle, and things are shifting now. And what you're going to see in chapter 12 is the rest of the story. There's a shift in the storyline. What we've been hearing so far really is the perspective from the throne room. From the throne room of God. And so that's what we've been getting. Visions that are told from the perspective of the throne room. Now there's a shift that's going to occur in chapter 12. And this cycle of vision is going to look at things from a different perspective. Actually, it's going to look at things from the perspective of the devil's activity. So that's the rest of the story. That's important. Now why is this here in Scripture? Well, we know the original audience, the seven churches, and really the whole early church, this was for them to encourage them. And this section of Scripture in chapter 12 and following is to help inform them about the devil's activities. Why? So they would be aware of his schemes and that they would be most aware of God and God's work to, to deliver them and to work and how God does things. So that's what's going on here. Uh, so we're going to dig in. I'm going to read through it. And then we'll take it section by section. And we'll learn uh, some key lessons here. So let's pray. And then we'll read God's Word. Thank You for Your Word, O God. Thank You for the rest of this story that we could gain understanding, that we could build our faith in You, that we could walk in the victory that You have for us. So help us in this. Help me to teach and proclaim Your Word, O God. Um, and we look forward to what You're going to do. Our God who's the living God and who speaks and brings life. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. You follow along with me. Chapter 12, starting in verse 1. It says, And a great sign appeared in heaven. A, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to His throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a, has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. 
For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she, where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with the flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. That's God's Word from Revelation chapter 12. This perspective of this great epic conflict features the activity of the devil. Uh, And the goal, I believe, in this is to inform us, to help us be aware of the devil's schemes, but more importantly, to give us faith and courage to trust God, a God who protects us and delivers us. God wants us to know the truth that was loudly proclaimed by Martin Luther, who in his day faced many devils and many schemes of the devil, and loudly proclaimed in the hymn, a mighty fortress is our God. That's the, I think, the central lesson to this chapter. A mighty fortress is our God. We'll dig in and we'll look at three different aspects of that as we follow along in the text. So first, a mighty fortress is our God at the darkest moment. Verses 1-6. through six. We start in the chapter and you meet right away a great sign in heaven. A woman clothed with a sun with the moon under her feet and on her head are, is a crown of twelve stars. And then you meet this other great sign, uh, this dragon, this multi-headed great red dragon. Um, it's, it's quite a sight, and, and the, the picture of this uh, is dramatic. Uh, it makes me think of something out of like a Godzilla movie or something. That's kind of the idea here. And I believe that's intended. This picture, this uh, dramatic picture, this vivid picture is intended to kind of be so vivid that it kind of sinks in our minds and stays there to represent some key truths. Against Revelation, these images, these visions represent truth. Uh, they speak about truth. They, they most of the time are symbolic. Um, and we take them according to their context. Uh, and so they represent truth. So this woman and the dragon, of course, represent truth. But it's a vivid picture. Uh, that, that effect uh, of just the drama of it, like a Godzilla movie, is intended. Uh, it's to, it's from what we can tell, it, I think that John and really God is tapping into the astronomical imagination of the day. And what I mean by that is, is there are, uh, was an awareness of constellations and ideas about stars and planets and so forth. And it looks like that there's a connection here between um, the constellation Virgo and the constellation Hydra in the sky. Uh, so they're near each other. If you know those constellations, Virgo's here and Hydra's right underneath. Hydra is a, a many-headed dragon. Virgo is a woman. And yes, there may be some correlation with where they sit in the sky. Some people think that, that when Christ was born, actually, that Virgo was in a place where there were, the sun and the moon was there and so forth. 
I don't think that's the point here. I don't think it's try to, to try to do some astronomy and astrology to figure out what's going on. It, it's, I think, tapping into what they were familiar with to represent truth behind it. Probably a safer place to go is, is the dream of Joseph in Scripture. As he had a dream about his, uh, his life and what God was doing, he had a picture of the moon and the stars, the moon and the sun and the twelve stars bowing down, eleven stars actually bowing down to him. And so I think there's an allusion to that here that the woman represents believing Israel, uh, tapping into Joseph and the twelve and so forth. So there's a connection here probably with constellations uh, and the history of Israel so that we would understand that this woman represents believing Israel. We know as we you read through the story here, it speaks of the woman. She gives birth to a child, a male child. And it describes the child, it says, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. Uh, and we find that elsewhere in Scripture. Psalm 2, if you could just put up Psalm 2, I'm not going to read through it. If you read through Psalm 2, you'll see that it's a psalm about the Messiah. It's about the King that God was installing to install on the holy hill who would reign over all the nations and he would rule all the nations. He is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. He is the absolute ruler. Of course, he's the good shepherd as well, but he is absolute ruler. So this reference here to this child with the rod of iron means it's speaking of Jesus. Right? Always a good answer. Uh, it's speaking of Jesus. It's speaking of the Messiah. So, with that, we understand the woman not only with Joseph's dream and so forth uh, representing believing Israel, but with the fact that believing Israel really gave birth to the Messiah. Some think that the woman is Mary, but I don't think it's Mary because though Mary did physically give birth to Jesus, um, she didn't go on to have other offspring that the, the devil wants to chase and so forth. So there's an illusion here uh, uh, representing the believing Israel giving birth to Jesus and really giving birth to the whole church. And so, I think it's pretty clear that this is believing Israel. And the dragon, this is like Hydra, this many-headed dragon. He's got uh, seven heads. He's got uh, ten horns. He's got diadems on his head. There's, it, basically, all that is symbolizing power and authority. The, the authority comes with the crowns. The power is in the horns. And this... this Serpent sweeps a third of the stars from the sky. The allusion there we'll see later is, is taking down a third of the angels. We've already seen a reference in Revelation uh, to stars and angels correlating in chapter 1. So the idea is that this, this serpent sweeps down a third of the angels with him. And his desire is to devour the child. He is sitting there, just like in the sky, the constellations right before the Hydra's right before Virgo, sitting there waiting for the woman to give birth that, she, that he might devour the child. And in the storyline, he seeks to do that, but it says the child was caught up to God and to His throne. Um, the, just that short statement has a, a lot to it. It's really alluding to Jesus. It's speaking about Jesus and, and it's speaking... A couple things. First off, that the devil was intent on devouring the Messiah. He was intent in order to continue his reign to somehow stopping God's plan through the Messiah. And so he did all he could. And that started in the life of Jesus with King Herod, right? When, King, when Jesus was born, King Herod found out about it and he had all the, 
young, all the boys in the area that were in the area where Jesus had been born put to death, hoping to somehow kill the Messiah. So right in the beginning of Jesus' life, and then certainly throughout His life, and then ultimately in the cross. Jesus' death on the cross was in part at the hands of the devil and what the devil was doing inspiring people to kill Jesus. And so the, the enemy was intent on devouring the son, devouring the child. Uh, starting with King Herod and then in the crucifixion. And yet in the storyline in chapter 12, we see that the Lord rescues the child. That He's caught up to God and to His throne. And that speaks of how God took these best laid plans of, of the devil and twisted them to accomplish His plan. So even in this amazing, amazingly bad, terrible, dark moment where God the Son, God as man, dies on the cross, looks like it's utter defeat, it looks like the devil has somehow consumed the child, God turns it around, turns His darkest moment into the brightest moment. Because we know the story. We know the rest of the story here as well, right? It's in His death on the cross that He bore our sins. In His death, He bore the holy justice of God for our sins. And He paid for all of our sins. all of The sins of all of His people. Anyone who would put their trust in Christ. Your sin is paid for by Jesus on the cross in His death. Through His blood shed for you. The darkest moment is turned into the very brightest moment. The worst defeat is turned into the greatest victory at the cross. That, that's the, the wonder here. That's the wonder of the story. This is the wonder of this truth. The wonder of the victory of Christ. At the very darkest moment, God turns things around and uses that darkest moment to bring the very brightest victory. That is good news. That's the good news of Christ. And if you have come to Him in faith, that victory is your victory. You live in that. That's the implication here, right? The original audience, the church is listening to this. This is meant for them. And of course, through, through the Word preserved for us, meant for us to be encouraged that when things looked the darkest, God was in control and able to use them to do the very best thing. What, what a great story the, the Gospel is. Um, this truth. And, and really, all great stories are like this, aren't they? The stories that we love to listen to. Um, at the very darkest moment, things get turned around somehow uh, and, and end up changing. Those are at least the stories that I like. I think we all like those sorts of stories. Um, I think of, uh, again, I, I'm a Lord of the Rings fan. Uh, Tolkien does such a great job in his stuff like that. right? The, if you follow the storyline, there's these little half-sized people called hobbits and they don't seem like they can do anything. And at the very darkest moment where they're, where they're basically lost the cause, they're in the middle of this evil place, uh, lost the cause. Uh, the creature Gollum has t taken the ring. Bilbo messed, uh, Frodo messed up, and, and everything's dark. And then the, the, there's a battle going on. And they're losing the battle at that very moment, in a totally unexpected way. No one expected it to happen that way. Gollum takes the ring but falls into the, the fires of Mount Doom. And the, the, what was the darkest moment turns into the brightest moment at that point. Great story, and it's just a picture of this story. At the darkest moment, when the enemy looks like he's about to devour the child, God turns it on him, turns things from defeat into victory. And, and he's caught up to God. He's raised from the dead, victorious over sin and death. There's victory in him. And he's caught up to the throne as well, it says. So he's caught up to God. He's caught up to the throne. The implication is, now he reigns through this 
dark moment, now his death has earned him resurrection and reign. And he reigns now over all things. That's the, the, the glory here in this story. And, and so what does it mean to us? Well, it means a couple things. I think first it means that Jesus has won the victory. And no matter what we might be going through, our sins are forgiven in Him. And we are accepted as sons and daughters through faith in Him. And we are rescued from our greatest peril. To be objects of God's just wrath is our greatest peril. And Jesus has come and He's rescued us. He's invaded our world. He's was subjected to death and the horrors of bearing our sin. And in Him we are forgiven. We are free. So no matter how hard things might be at points in this life, they would never be as hard as it would be to be separated from God for eternity. And you are rescued. And God will work through those things in your life. Jesus has already won the victory. He, God has turned the darkest moment into the brightest moment in Jesus. And that victory is for us. And God is the same God. The same God that did this with Jesus works in our lives in the same way. So even in our dark moments, even in our struggles, He's able to meet us and use us and use those things to work good. We're promised that He will use all things for our good. Even our struggles. Even these deepest, darkest struggles. The deepest depression we might feel. The deepest discouragement we might feel. God is able to meet us in those and redeem those things to work great good. To make us like Jesus. So brother or sister, this story is for you. That you might ground yourself in the story. Ground yourself in the identity that you have in Christ. And live out your life in light of that as you go through the difficulties of life. So God is a mighty fortress even in our darkest moments. Next section, verses 7-12. through God is a mighty fortress in the heavenlies, in the heavenly realm. It, the story continues. It says, Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. So there's this battle in heaven and uh, between the, the dragon and his angels. So it's the devil and his angels, and Michael, a great angel, uh, and the good angels, the two-thirds of heaven, are fighting against the dragon. And... Uh, Michael, we, we meet elsewhere in Scripture. In particular, we meet him in Daniel. He's the great champion in the book of Daniel of God's people. He fights for God's people in the book of Daniel. He fights against the prince of Persia who's opposing God. He, uh, it looks like a, it's a demonic entity overseeing Persia and so forth. And then we see in chapter uh, 10 or in chapter 12, I think it actually is, where uh, he fights against the enemy. It talks about him fighting against the enemy at the end time as well. I think that's connected to our section here. And so he fights against Satan and his angels, and Satan and his angels are thrown out of heaven. A third of the angels are, uh, go with him, so it's an, another connection there to earlier on, the, his tail sweeping the third of the angels. Here we, we learn that a third of the angels are thrown down with him. Uh, and those are what are demons, basically. They're bad angels, evil angels, with Satan, who is an evil angel himself, cast out of heaven by Michael. So there's a war, there's a battle in heaven. And there's victory in heaven. There's victory in heaven going on in this section, section seven, chapter uh, verses seven through twelve. There's there's a victory that corresponds to this. It's a little bit challenging as you read through it to think like, well, when did this actually happen? What's the time period? Because as you read through it, you see the the victory uh, in the 
the first six verses, and, and obviously that's through Jesus. So that happened at the time of Jesus. And then it says, now war arose. And it talks about uh, Satan being kicked out of heaven with the angels. But, but if we back up in the storyline of the Bible, we realize, well, didn't something happen a lot earlier? Wasn't there a serpent in the garden? And wasn't he cast out and cursed at that point? So when did this happen? And so uh, Bible commentators wrestle with that. Some say, well, it's kind of transcending time. That it's kind of looking back to an earlier time before uh, the garden perhaps. Um, and that's kind of how they wrestle with it. I, I certainly think that could be true, but I think there's something else going on here because there's a connection. There's, there seems to be a connection. At times, visions are not connected chronologically, but here there seems to be a connection because it talks about what goes on in 1-6, through six, and then it says, now war arose in heaven. And it follows right on there. And then in, as we read through the context here, it speaks of aspects of the victory. So, uh, Michael and the angels strode down Satan and his angels. And then it says, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come, for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. So, this battle that goes on in heaven results in the power and authority and kingdom of God coming. The authority of His Christ has come in this battle, related to this battle. Uh, so hang in there. just want you to remember that. Then one other thing it says, verse 11, that's important. They have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Wow, it, who's that? Who is conquered by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony? I mean, talking about Michael and his angels, who are these other people? And I, what I would say is they're believers. Because the whole storyline of Revelation is about being faithful witnesses. People who live in the truth of the blood of the Lamb shed for them. And who are faithful to represent the fruit of that faith, of that truth, and proclaim the, the message of that. The word of their testimony. So it's speaking of really the church at that point. But that time-wise, we know, is from Jesus onward, right? And, and this battle... We're not sure initially where it fits, but then it, it, it says that now that the battle has happened, there's authority. The authority of His Christ have come. So I think the best way to understand this is that there's a heavenly battle that goes alongside the victory of Christ. And though Satan uh, was cast out of heaven earlier because of his rebellion and thus took part in the temptation of Adam and Eve and, and all sorts of things, he actually exercised a degree of authority in the heavenlies. He exercised a degree of authority ultimately because mankind had, had abdicated authority by sin. Mankind was made to rule and reign over the earth under the Lord. We abdicated that through our sin. Then Satan leverages our sin and through death manipulates and controls mankind. And Christ's death comes and Satan can be a legitimate accuser of the brethren. He can say, this one's a sinner, does not deserve to, to walk with you, does not deserve to have inheritance in you with you, Lord, does not deserve to exercise any authority. He's an accuser who, who on valid grounds can stand and accuse and maintain his authority. But now Christ has come. Christ has come as a man, has shed his blood, paid for our sins, and has satisfied justice and has earned the right to rule and reign as a man and as the perfect man, as God-man, but as a man has, has won that authority. And so the authority of His Christ has come. 
So Satan is basically kicked out of any place of authority. Now, he still maintains power. We'll, we'll see that in the storyline. He still has an effect. He still has influence. But he no longer possesses legitimate authority. Christ has won that. There's a victory now that comes in Jesus through His blood. And, and He has done that in His death. And, and now He is reigning. And now, through His people who live by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony, He continues to conquer. I hope that makes sense. Um, I hope at least you could follow uh, the, the thinking there. I think that's a, w- a right way to, to represent this chapter uh, and what is going on. There's a victory. The victory that we have in Jesus. That's a heavenly victory. A mighty fortress is, is our God in the heavenlies. He has won the victory and now we have authority. Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. Right? We just heard recently, uh, a couple Sundays ago, um, Matthew 28, Jesus has all authority in heaven and earth. It's been given Him. He now rules and reigns. And so He reigns over the enemy and we and Him have authority over the enemy. The enemy does not have authority over us. He might have influence. He might have power in the world. And we'll look at that. He might do things. He might manipulate the rulers uh, in the world. He might manipulate the culture. He might do and use all these different methods, but He can no longer exert any sort of authority over us as God's people. We are forgiven and we are free. There's no condemnation now for those in Christ Jesus. He cannot accuse us. We are forgiven and free. No matter how much you might struggle at times and and feel bad about your sin, we want to repent of our sin. We want to pursue holiness. But because of Christ, His righteous life, His blood shed for you on the cross, you stand forgiven. You stand justified. You are called designated righteous before God. When God looks at you, He sees Jesus in His righteousness. There's no more accusation from the enemy. No condemnation. And He has no authority in your life. He can only manipulate. He can only deceive. He can only tempt you. But He has no authority over you. There's a heavenly victory that is yours in Jesus. And that's what's going on here. And when we live in the blood of the Lamb, and when we live in the Word of our testimony, we extend the reign of God. Because there's people out there who right now are under the the domination of the enemy, are lost in their sin, and are facing eternal death, in death already. And when we share the good news, the word of our testimony, when we're faithful witnesses, God uses us to extend the kingdom. To release people from the devil who had held them in a snare under their sin and under the just penalty for sin. That's what's going on here. And, and And I hope that makes sense fits in with what we see in the rest of Scripture that, that this is what the Lord has done. The, the devil, this dragon, has no more authority. He can only now influence. He can only manipulate. And that's really the, the third part of this section. The victory has been won. And, and this is to be an encouragement to us. To fight. To fight the spiritual battle. To fight for the Gospel. To fight for the Kingdom. Because the victory already is ours. We are safe. We are secure. Though the enemy may do lots of things, he cannot touch our lives ultimately because we are safe. We are forgiven. The very worst that he could do is to use to manipulate people in such a way that they would, they would hate us. Um, or he might manipulate things in such a way that he would, our lives would be taken. But, but you know what? In Jesus, death is no longer an enemy. It's actually a friend. It's an usher. It welcomes us. It ushers us into the presence of God. Death is transformed by the victory of Jesus. So we are conquerors in Jesus. There's nothing to be afraid of in Him. 
And so we, it should be an encouragement. This section of Scripture should be an encouragement for us to not count our lives as counting anything to us. If only we might live in the Gospel and if only we might spread the good news of the Gospel and touch lives. We're not worried about our lives. It, it says that they conquer because the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And it says, for they love not their lives even unto death. Why? Because they had life. Eternal life. They have life. Eternal life in Jesus. That's how we overcome. That's how we, do, how we do the Christian life. That's how we orient ourselves. That's how we live in this very short life we have. Now, now God uses all sorts of things in life to do that. I'm not saying we need to all run out of here right now and just start going down the street yelling, Jesus reigns! And that's what He wants us to do. He's going to use all sorts of things. He's going to use the, every aspect of our lives, our careers, our, our vocations, our relationships, our families, all these things. So we see that in the rest of Scripture. So don't hear what I'm not saying. But even in all those things, we're to live in the Gospel. And we're to live to, to demonstrate the power of Christ. What a life looks like in Jesus. What the life will look like when He returns. And then to proclaim the good news. So this is an encouragement to us to fight on. It actually makes me think of the French resistance during World War II. I don't know if you know the storyline, but France was overrun by the Nazis. They took over all of France. And, uh, and much of France actually... Uh, came under the, the Nazi-led government there. But a, a lot of the citizens refused to submit. And even under Nazi-occupied France, they joined this resistance, this underground. And they fought. They fought when things looked terrible. But then when D-Day came, as D-Day approached, and as D-Day continued, there was a new vitality that they had. And, and they increased their efforts to assist the invasion of, of D-Day and, and what followed. Matter of fact, some of them were so enthusiastic that, that even before the Allies got to their villages, the Nazis were still in their villages, they started flying the, the, fr the free French flag, which could get them killed. Because they knew that D-Day had come. They knew that victory was on the way. They knew that it was just a matter of time before it was complete. And so they were emboldened to fight and to resist and to live for their free country. That's what I think this passage should do in our lives as well. The victory has been won in the heavenlies. It's assured. And He's using us to extend the kingdom. So let's fight. Let's be unafraid. Let's be bold. Let's trust Him. Let's live in the authority we have in Him. Let us fight His temptations and His lies and deceit that we might live in the victory we have in Jesus. Let's do that, guys, in our families, in our neighborhoods, at school and at work. Wherever, wherever we find ourselves, let's live in the Gospel. Let's live to see territory taken from the enemy for God's glory. Last section. A mighty fortress is our God on earth. So the enemy gets kicked out of heaven and then what happens? Well, he's on the earth. And he doesn't have a place. He doesn't have authority anymore in the heavenlies. And so he's working on the earth. So he's, he's working among mankind is the idea here. He's been thrown down to the earth and he pursues the woman now. He, he's still intent in his hatred of this woman. This woman representing believing Israel. And she flees. Actually, it says that she's given the wings of the great eagle to fly away. Uh, there's a reference to, Gen uh, to Exodus where God speaks of delivering His people out of Egypt uh, on wings of an eagle into the desert to be safe, to be away from Egypt. I, I think that's a correct allusion here. You'll see reference in here as well to the 1,260 days or the three and a half years. We've already seen that earlier. 
Uh, I think there's, as I said earlier, that's connected to a number of things. First, uh, from what we understand, uh, around 70 AD, the, uh, the, the Romans besieged Jerusalem. It, the siege lasted about three and a half years. The people of God actually had already fled out of Jerusalem. They lived in Pella. That's all documented. They were safe there. So I think there's an illusion believing Israel, the woman, is protected by God. He brings them to Pella. They're safe. But Revelation is not just about what went on then. It's for the church throughout all time. It points to the ultimate fulfillment of these things. And so it's a paradigm. It's a picture, really, of the church. It's a picture of, of what it is to be part of the church now. That The enemy seeks to pursue us, but our God provides refuge. Our God provides refuge. He provides places to, to be safe and to be nurtured. The enemy continues to pursue the woman. He pours out a river of vile water to drown her. And the earth opens up and swallows the water. The implication there, of course, is the sovereign one over the earth swallows the water up and delivers her. It's a picture of the sort of pursuit and hate that the enemy has for the church. But also I think it's, it's a, an allegory uh, representative of just how, what the enemy does. He has no more spiritual authority, but if he can use things to somehow overwhelm us, and I think it speaks of things like discouragement, deceit, heresy, um, compromise with the culture. So if he can spew vile things out of his mouth that somehow will overwhelm the church, he thinks, I can, I can finally get my revenge. And yet God in His sovereignty opens up the earth and swallows those things. God protects the church. Historically, we know that to be true. The book of Acts, reading through the book of Acts, is just one story after another of opposition that comes against the church and one story after another of how God intervenes and preserves and promotes the church, keeps it going. This, the history of the church is the same, is it not? That throughout history, the church at time, times has seemed to be overwhelmed by heresy, seemed to be overwhelmed by, by attack and so forth, but, the, but it prevails. I think of things like the Reformation. God bringing the Reformation. Is God swallowing up that water, the vile water of heresy, and the vile water that would, that would darken the Gospel so that the Gospel can be restored. I think of the modern mission movement where the church had lost its mission edge. And God brought a number of things to, to revive them in this truth so that the church would be preserved and continued. This is what the Lord does. He, he is sovereign and He cares for us. In the storyline, the woman is protected in these ways and then the dragon realizes, boy, God's got this woman safe and says that he goes off to, to fight against the rest of the woman's offspring. I think that's an illusion here. Uh, making war on the rest of the offspring is really the rest of the whole church. So it's probably uh, geared towards believing in Israel, but also speaking of a paradigm for all the church. But now here specifically, it's saying that the dragon is having been frustrated in his pursuit of believing in Israel. So these are uh, Messianic Jewish people at the, at the time. He's going to go after the rest of the church. And so what we're going to see, we'll see this later, uh, he stands on the shore of the sea, and now there's a, a plan to use really the, the governments of the earth and the false religions of the earth to somehow get at God's people. And that's, we'll see that later when we get to it. Uh, next in a few weeks. So that's what's going on here. The, uh, that's, I think, what this section means. It's speaking to us of the ways of the enemy in our time. Uh, and so let me offer some observations and application in light of this, this particular section, really the, the whole thing. A few, um, few observations. First, is just to recognize, as I was saying, the stakes are not as high as they used to be in the enemy's opposition. The victory of Christ in His death and resurrection has defanged the dragon. 
Now, he can still gum us to death, but he doesn't have any fangs. So he has no bite. He has no authority. He cannot condemn you. He, will, he cannot steal your soul. You are safe. But he now uses deceit. He uses the, the, the world, the lost part, aspect of the world and culture. He uses influence over perhaps governments or whatever to work his evil. So to recognize that, that the stakes are no longer as high, but they're still significant. And to recognize in this lesson that the, the woman is protected. And, and I think that would speak to us of the fact that God knows how to protect us. He knows how to mix together seasons of peace and church prosperity with seasons of persecution and trouble. And He knows the perfect timing in that. He's good. He's sovereign over that. So we can trust Him. And that's the history of the church. There are seasons where things are very tough and seasons where there's peace. And yet we have victory in Him. And, and practically, we could look at how He works out His victory, how He, do, how he swallows up the river. And, and, and you know, I, I would look to, I don't have time now, to, to look in Ephesians 6 and our spiritual armor, all that we have in the Gospel and, and how in those things, as we stand in the Gospel, as we pray together, as we encourage one another, as we band together, God uses those things to swallow up that river. And you might be feeling the river of, of discouragement and God would use your brothers and sisters to pray for you. The promises of the Gospel to, to combat the enemy so you can stand and, and know victory there. I think we see this uh, lived out really in Scripture. I think of Peter, the Apostle Peter. Um, in his life. He, it's a picture in his life. He went through many, many seasons. He went through times when... when he was imprisoned. I counted three at least in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 4, early on he's in prison for sharing the Gospel. Acts 6, they imprison him and they beat him. He gets out. Keeps on sharing the Gospel. Keeps on being fruitful. Acts chapter 12, uh, Herod captures him and plans to kill him. And an angel comes and releases him out of the prison and he's free. So these wonderful adventures of sorts, I mean they're pretty intense because it's his life that's at stake, but God delivers him time and time again. But we know that when it was time, under Nero, that Peter didn't escape that time. That Nero put Peter to death. Yet God was still sovereign. God was in control of that. And for, for Peter, that death is, is not an enemy ultimately. It's an usher into the presence of God. It is going to be so wonderful to talk to Peter someday when we go to be with the Lord and hear his story. And it's a picture of the Christian life. Our God is sovereign. He knows how to protect us. He knows how to deliver us. And He's sovereign over even when it might be time that our lives are, are taken. He's still sovereign. The, the enemy's been defanged. We live in the victory of Christ. So, the encouragement here as the, the band comes up and we transition. Brother and sister, take heart. Be bold. Nothing will truly harm you. The devil has been defeated. Christ is victorious and He is yours. Heaven awaits you. Take heart. Be bold. Be unafraid. Live in the Gospel. Make Christ known. Christ has overcome. And I just want to finish with the words of Martin Luther as he wrote this wonderful hymn translated into English. He lived in a day where he faced many devils. He faced many trials. And yet he knew the truth of this chapter and of Scripture. Listen to his words. In the hymn, A Mighty Fortress, he says, A mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing. Our helper He amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek 
to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate, on earth is not His equal. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Does ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord Sabbath, His name, from age to age the same. And He must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure, for lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. That word above all earthly powers. No thanks to them abideth. The Spirit and the gifts are ours through Him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Lord, I pray that You would strengthen and encourage your people this morning, that we would live in the victory we have in You. And as we celebrate it in communion, as we uh, are sent from here, as we take time to hear about the plant in Salem, we remember what we have in this glorious victory, we pray. Amen.